0: That Triathlon Show, 399. Hey, what's up everybody? And welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientific I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we have another Q&A. This one is on the topic of uh, racing and the topic of testing. And uh, yeah, I want to start with one general comment. I was quite surprised by the lack of questions or the few questions we got about racing Uh, just my subjective experience as a coach and as an athlete is that probably most people don't have racing completely figured out and in fact uh, a lot of people have a lot to gain by becoming better racers uh, and probably much more so than by finding a better testing protocol than what they are currently using of course this doesn't apply to everybody but it's just something to think about in general that it's pretty easy to miss the forest for the trees sometimes when we're trying to leave no stone unturned to train better and get fitter and getting doing better testing is part of that of course but at the end of the day the majority of athletes would want to train better and get fitter so that they can perform better on race day. And I think that a lot of athletes just have huge untapped potential in improving their racing craft. Uh, so yeah, so that, that's the point I want to make and something to think about. Maybe it doesn't apply to you at all, but uh, for some people it might. And it might be uh, yeah something that you can, you can think about. Uh, if this applies to you, how can I improve my race craft? So uh, anyway, maybe I'll send out another request for racing-related questions sometime next year. For a new Q and A, and uh, hopefully by then we will get a lot more questions on that topic uh, because we only had a a half a handful now. But uh, yeah, we do have a a bunch of questions still, and this episode goes on for more than an hour, so there's lots of content still, and hopefully you enjoy this Q and A. But uh, let's thank our sponsors. Form the Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real time feedback in your swim training right on the Google Lens, including splits, pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. This means that you can execute your swim workouts a lot better whether it's about pushing harder when you're starting to fall off the pace or holding back when you're accidentally going faster than you should it also means that you don't need to use your gps watch in the pool you can automatically get the start and stop and uh, of course the time of each split because the goggles will automatically detect that and give you really accurate splits Uh, and uh, even more importantly perhaps they add some fun and motivation because it it becomes so much more engaging when you get that real-time feedback in your swimming than when you have to wait until the end of, uh, end of the length to or end of the interval i should say to get any kind of feedback you can get 15 percent off the goggles with the code tts15 on formswim.com forward slash tts and thank you to Zenate. the senate indoor swim trainer allows you to improve your technique power and swim training consistency even when you're short on time it's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool it is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming because it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming like your catch and your power, and you can isolate these more easily than you can in the water. You can try to it risk free for up to 30 days. So, if you don't love it, just send it back, and you can get 20% off your first order on slash tts Now, without any further ado, let's get into the QA. The first question for today is from Mathieu, who asks: I have a fairly aggressive bike position that I can hold for a 70.3. However, I noticed on my first race of the season that on the run, my breathing was shallow and painful, possibly because my diaphragm was somewhat blocked from the bike position. Does that seem likely and what would you advise to do to limit it? So first of all I do think that an aggressive bike position could have that impact on the respiratory system. It doesn't mean necessarily that in this case it absolutely was that there are no other options but yes it could have that effect. Uh, When we talk about the respiratory system something that a lot of people don't think about is that it can be quite a bit more influential in endurance performance than it is often given credit for uh, firstly the respiratory system needs a relatively large energy supply during exercise and any energy that goes to the respiratory system of course is energy that can cannot go to the locomotor muscles so in other words the economy of the respiratory system is important if we can have it be functional and and uh, work with using less energy then that's energy that we can use to move forward faster Uh, and uh, this is something that varies the economy and respiratory system that is from person to person but it can also vary based on things like being in an aggressive aero position versus a less aggressive position uh, or even sitting upright on let's say in a road bike position Things like wearing a wetsuit might might also impact the economy of the respiratory system. So there's a lot of things there to consider. But more than just the economy factor, and more importantly, is that over extended durations of exercise, the respiratory system can fatigue. And uh, that too is likely to be impacted by something like an aggressive aero position. The, so the primary thing that I would recommend to mitigate the issue, uh, which could potentially be this kind of respiratory system fatigue, uh, is that making sure that you have enough training that approaches race demands so that you can, first of all, uh, train the respiratory system in addition to the cardiovascular and musculoskeletal system and make sure that it's ready for these demands. Uh, So that means doing race simulation workouts, a hard bike with a good amount of race intensity work in the race position, and then doing a run off the bike at race pace. And uh, if you then notice that even with training, with repeating that a few times, uh, that uh, the issue is still very significant and you don't seem to get better necessarily in terms of the respiratory uh, discomfort that you experienced, then at that point, maybe consider adopting a less aggressive position if, if that is the case. Uh, so that would be my primary recommendation to just look at specific training and see if that helps uh, helps the issue, which it very well could do. But if it doesn't, then I would say that changing your bike position as a first step would be my recommendation. Even if you do switch to a less aggressive position on the bike in the short term, you can still do things uh, that might allow you to hold that more aggressive position longer term. So one of them would be to focus on your uh, breathing mechanics, making sure that you're really breathing from the diaphragm and expanding your rib cage uh, as you inhale, trying to take deep breaths and maintaining uh, a consistent uh, respiratory frequency, uh, a consistent but not too fast, not too fast and shallow hypervent ventilation thing and secondly would be a bit more high-tech but there is some evidence to suggest that various respiratory training methods and devices can improve endurance performance Uh, without going too deep into this there are mainly two types of devices Uh, there are those that provide resistance during inhalation and examples of that would be power breathe and aerofit and then there are devices that are made for what's called voluntary isocapnic hyperpnea which basically allows you to breathe without resistance but with constant co2 levels and you provide the training stimulus based on how vigorously uh, your how vigorously you uh, you breathe and the respiratory frequency and duration of training and examples of these kinds of, devi- of devices would be the breathe way better device and the spyro tiger and i have used the breathe way better a bit it's a cool device uh, i have not used it enough to really gauge any effects of of the training so can't comment on that from personal experience uh, but that is something that down the line you down the line you could potentially look at uh, as an adjunct to your normal training but potentially also uh, while you're training in the aero position that would be on the on the, trainer, not out on the the road uh, but to really challenge the respiratory system and, and make it adapt uh, going into the, the evidence of these devices is beyond the scope for today but uh, it is something that i hope to do in, in a future episode and and hopefully with uh, with an expert on that topic in that case but either way uh, i would come back to the points that i made first or earlier here that it's it's first and foremost about just making sure that you have you done significantly challenging race simulation training with a hard bike in the aggressive position and running off the bike and and only if you do that and uh, your breathing continues to be an issue that is when you really might need to start looking into uh, into other aspects of well first of all position or positional changes on the bike but also maybe if you should consider doing some something specific with the respiratory system whether it be biomechanical changes or even uh, respiratory training i hope that this helps and i hope that you can resolve your issues and have a great season going forward The next question is from Henry, who asks, what are the biggest gains one can make during race week? So my answer to this one is maybe a little bit cheeky, but I'd say uh, it's to not F things up in training and doing too much. With all the usual caveats, and it depends, generally I do think that less is more in race week, both when it comes to intensity and volume, and especially when we're talking longer races, so like let's say longer than two hours, which for most age group athletes is anything from Olympic distance and and up. So to give you an idea, for an athlete training, let's say 15 hours per week normally, I think uh, most people would do well with averaging around one hour or just on un- just below one hour of training per day in race week and that might mean doing a couple of one hour 15 minute days early on in race week and then uh, just 45 minutes in the middle and 30 minutes later on in the race week something like that so really not doing too much is number one by the way those those hours so those one hour 15 minutes might still look like a 40 minute swim and a 35 minute run or something like that it might still be two workouts per day i do believe in generally maintaining frequency of training but it just means really really short workouts generally so so yeah again summary Don't do too much, neither volume nor intensity. The second one uh, that I would say, and it is a big one, it is sleep. Uh, I really think that if you give yourself one hour more sleep opportunity per night, that can make an amazing difference, especially if you're normally on the low end of the recommended range. So let's say you're normally getting seven, seven and a half hours of sleep per night, and you go to eight, eight and a half hours per night, you will feel like a million bucks. Uh, generally speaking, at least that that is uh, what I've seen. And this is another reason why, going quite low volume on training in race week is beneficial because it it does give you as and we're talking amateur athletes here amateur athletes here it does give you that extra time that you need to up your sleep uh, because of course time is limited you still have work to do family demands and so on but if you instead of training one and a half hours in the morning suddenly you're training 40 minutes in the morning then maybe you can go to bed 15 minutes earlier in the evening and you, suddenly you have you easily have that extra hour uh, that you uh, that you want to add to your sleep and and i would start with this from the very first day of race week i, f- I think that that's a good routine the third one uh, is nutrition so carb loading one to two days before and i personally prefer two and generally recommend two days of carb loading uh, some people notably tim podlogar who i had on the podcast and who is absolutely fantastic he had some good arguments for just doing one day of carb loading uh if you do just one day of carb loading, I would front load the carbs to get most of them earlier in the day rather than later. And, and I would make sure, be really diligent with counting the carbs to make sure that you get 10 to 12 grams of carbs per kilogram body weight. For a two-day carb load, the advantage uh, to me is that first of all you you just have a little bit of an extra buffer so even if you maybe miscalculate some things you you have already topped up your glycogen stores reasonably well from the first day of the carb load and and even if the the second day maybe you get a bit less than you ideally wanted but but that might be enough to get to that completely 100% replenished point anyway so it's just having uh, some safeguards uh, really but also for a two-day carb load the first or the two days you don't have to think anything about front loading for the second day i would still do that to make sure that you don't have to just stuff yourself in the afternoon and evening before the race because that just feels quite uncomfortable but in the morning it's it's generally quite easy to do that uh, so and if you do two days by the way you maybe can have a little bit more flexibility instead of really really making sure that you go to uh, close to 12 grams per kilo body weight you can be in that 8 to 12 gram per kilo body weight on those days i wouldn't be afraid to go uh, to 12 grams per kilo body weight i have done that uh, several times on two-day carb loads and felt great Uh, so it's not that you're going to get too much but but also you can have a bit if you find that a struggle uh, to get that amount then maybe instead of having one day of 12 grams per kilo body weight of carbs having two days of nine to ten grams would be uh is is more feasible for you Uh, and in addition to the carb load obviously making sure that you eat things that will help you digest or that will help you prevent any kind of gi issues so actually when it comes to carb loading a lot of the carbs for me at least personally everybody's individual here but what i do and what i recommend is to get a lot of it from liquid sources so one of them would be Melted extract mixed with fructose, uh, and uh, then another one would be just plain and simple Coke, and uh and then some very simple carbs like rice, jam, Haribo's. Those are good good sources, and basically my go tos. Um, the fourth one that you can do, the fourth biggest gain that you can get in race week is bike prep. So make sure that your a clean bike is a fast bike. Right, make sure that your bike is as fast as it can be, clean and shiny waxed or lubed chain with great quality products perfect gears and brakes etc so so if you go from a really dirty and inefficient drivetrain to a really clean and fast one that can be that could easily be 10 watts saved so so that would be the the fourth one so so yeah as you can see there's nothing you can do in training to to gain uh, performance on race day there are definitely things that you can mess up and the point about training in race week is to not mess things up not do too much but then there are things outside of training sleep nutrition and bike prep that you can do to definitely make big gains on race day oh and sorry going back to the nutrition a little bit one thing i should say is is that uh, yeah i I already mentioned some of the carb sources that i would use in the two days before the race but uh, but things like thinking about minimizing fiber um potentially minimizing things like uh lactose and glucose uh, sorry lactose and gluten not glucose uh, would be good to just minimize any risk of of gi issue on race day i think that i mean again coming back to personally what i do is that i try to not have any lactose in especially the day before the race even though i'm not lactose intolerant by any stretch and uh, same thing with gluten. I'm not gluten intolerant. Uh, I don't generally have any issues, but I just know that these are sources that for a lot of people there might be a small impact that you might feel in the uh, eighth hour of an iron man that you wouldn't feel normally and uh, yeah then that's those are the kinds of things that i would minimize so fiber lactose and, and gluten and of course if you have things that you know that you tolerate less well than others fats as well fats take longer to digest so so th- that's another thing that i would put on the things to really minimize or avoid in those two days before the race to make sure that you're just giving yourself the the maximum chance or minimum chance of having any kind of GI issues. By the way, I am terribly sorry for the scraping noises that you might have been able to just hear there in the background. Our neighbors are doing some kind of of DIY, I think. Uh, But anyway, moving on to the next question, uh, which is also from Henry. When is it better to race by feel? so using no data and what types of athletes should do that or should they so uh, firstly uh, one scenario where you should maybe use more data and rely more on data is if you find yourself consistently overpacing uh, so going too hard earlier in the race and then fading towards the back end this is a scenario where if you are already using data then you just need to reassess your plan because something is wrong with your plan it's not realistic Uh, but if you are maybe having data but you're not using it you're just uh following your your feel basically then this is this is an area where you might need to rely a bit more on data and be a bit yeah more strict on yourself with following a plan even if you feel really good early on in the race Uh, the the other the opposite scenario that is that if you find yourself consistently crossing the finish line and wondering if you really really squeezed everything out of yourself or if you left something out there that's when you might experiment with doing the opposite of what you're currently doing meaning that if you are uh, currently using data you're following a good pacing strategy it it's clearly working well because you reach the finish line and and you're not you haven't overdone you haven't overpaced yourself you have stayed strong until the end but this but maybe maybe you are leaving something out there so try to do a race with without data or at least uh not really using the data and and see how that goes you may find yourself breaking boundaries and reaching a new level by by just not having such a strict strategy or following the strategy so so strictly and and maybe depending on your personality here it it might mean that yeah you just Don't have any data. Uh, Some some people might be fine with having the data there, but just not not following it, not adhering to it, not even having a strict pacing plan from the beginning. Just seeing seeing what comes out of you on the day. Uh, Others for others that might be difficult. You might automatically uh, fall back to your the pacing plan of your last race, and and because you're maybe a bit afraid of pushing the boundaries. Uh, and in that case you might have to just not use any data and uh, so you have to see what uh, what kind of personality i guess you are as a as an athlete as a racer but yeah this is this is the scenario where i would consider not using data but but if you are again in that scenario where you reach the finish line not sure if you squeezed everything out yourself uh, but you're currently just racing by feel then your tendency might be to be a good pacer but maybe a bit risk averse so so you might consider using data using data more than you are currently doing maybe and Setting a slightly more aggressive pacing strategy simply for our next race and and try to stick to it even if you feel that, oh, this is hard, but just try to stick to it. So so you can yeah, just use how you get to the end of the race and what 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 is the way that you get to the end of the race with and and see if there are and basically change things if you think that there might be some optimization to do. There is uh another I guess more unusual scenario, but worth pointing out. And that is that if you're in the race to really, really race it, uh, then racing without data might very well be the way to go. For example, let's say you're, you're going to your local park run every week. You're consistently placing in the top 10, your seventh, ninth, sixth, et cetera. But now your training has been going really well and you want to make it onto the podium. So if, if that is the case, just leave the watch at home just put yourself on the start line on the front line go with the pace that you need to go to be in that top three contention hang on for dear life it will be really hard uh, but this is how you find breakthroughs this is the reason that when you look at world triathlon races world triathlon championship series you you don't see people running with watches generally almost nobody uh, does it because it's all about you need to go with the speed of the race you're just trying to hang on on for dear life beat the guy or beat the the woman next to you uh, move up in the in the field uh, if you're coming from behind you're just using the other people around you and and you're using your feel but yeah you're the watch is of no use in those kinds of scenarios so so when you're trying to go for something like a podium uh, and or a really good performance whatever whatever that is like racing other people uh, being in it as a race then sometimes racing with no data makes a lot of sense it's also worth pointing out uh related to all of this that for beginner athletes who don't have a lot of race experience that racing with data and the conservative Plan uh, is generally a good thing, but then using that experience to calibrate your feel every time you race—that's what I would recommend. Uh, This is assuming, of course, that the athlete even has access to data, because a lot of beginners start out without having any devices. So, and that is totally fine. And then what you will do is just to have to learn to pace by feel, and you will make mistakes. It's a steep learning curve, uh, but it will be an invaluable learning experience for the rest of your endurance sports career. You just have to be a bit reflective and think about your pacing after the fact. Okay, what did I do good? What did I? What can I improve on for the next time? And then you will uh, sooner rather than later you will be uh, pretty good at pacing yourself and and being in tune with in tune with your body. For athletes, on the other hand, that have already accumulated a lot of racing experiment, experience, it is important to remember that even if you have data uh, so available to you during the race, it doesn't mean that you race with data rather than feel. It simply means that you race with data and feel, or maybe I should say feel and data. Because you, even if you have a plan it doesn't have to be set in stone. It shouldn't be set in stone. If you are experienced enough, you should change uh, how you execute the plan. If you really feel confident that, no, actually, based on how things are going here, I need to change my plan. And then time will tell whether that decision pays off or not. But that is how you learn. If it didn't pay off and if it does pay off, then great, that is perfect race execution. The more experience you you get, of course, the better you get at making these decisions and the more experience you have of using uh, of racing by feel and by data at the same time and and just and also reflecting on it after effect, the better the chances that you will consistently make good decisions when you're in these situations so yeah that is uh i would say my answer to this question when is it better to race by feel using no data there are some scenarios uh but in a lot of scenarios it's about using both together and uh yeah not being not being rigidly uh, focused on on just one of one of the two, but having having all of the all of all of the tools available that you can. The next question is from Michael, who asks: uh, I have a question about testing. Evidently, tests need to be tailored to some degree, at least, to the event that is being prepared for. I am a road cyclist, so a classification of events might be. Crits shorter than one hour, long road races, two to five hours long. Subcategories of these road races might be races uh, ending in a sprint, races with long hills, uh, and also flatter one-off, uh, one-off events versus stage races. What would be your chosen test metric for different events like these? And how often would you test? My personal preparation is for road races that are two to five hours long uh, not races uh, but that have have long hills in them all right uh, thank you for the question Michael there are some tests that I would do with all cyclists and uh, those would include a critical power test Uh, you can use a number of different combinations of durations but generally I use a three minute time trial and a 20 minute time trial to calculate critical power And I would use some kind of VO2max proxy test. Generally, I use uh, a ramp test but uh, you could also use a five minute time trial and that could actually be part of your critical power battery so if you want to kill two birds with one stone maybe do a five minute test and a 20 minute test Uh, maybe you also want something a bit shorter than a five minute test so you could still do a use a two minute test five minute test and 20 minute test or something like that but then you would get a critical power test and you would you get that vo2 max proxy from the five minute time trial and uh, i'm not saying a vo2 max proxy as in i'm not trying to calculate or estimate your vo2 max from it because that's not interesting but changes in that test in let's say a five minute time trial or in a ramp test like i use those would generally be reflective of changes in vo2 max and then the finally the final test that I would be would be a sprint test. So that could be a 10 to 20 second all out test and looking at both average power, but also peak power produced and, and how quickly you get to that peak power. Uh, and the tests, these tests, I like to do fairly early on after restarting training after a season break. So this might be in, let's say, November. Then I would look to retest a couple of months later. And, and from there, it really depends on what the racing schedule looks like. So if this is an athlete racing a lot, they might not repeat those tests again at all throughout the season because the priority is not testing, but it's performing in races. And to some extent, you might be able to even use your racing data to to assess your critical power and uh, and also maybe you know you can have your five minute mean max power from races and compare that to the five minute time trials if you have or five minute tests if you have used that in your testing battery so you can use some race data depending on the race races that you're doing of course and this is assuming that you're getting all out efforts in those races and i would probably not do any other tests than these so you're asking for specific tests tailored for the events I generally don't do that but what I do do of course is specific race preparation workouts that simulate the race demands and because these workouts are usually rather hard it is like a test in itself Uh, training is testing so to say also if you make sure that you use the same structure for these race specific workouts uh, the next time you're preparing for a race of of a similar kind then you will be able to compare where you are now compared to where you were then so when you since you are using the same race specific workouts or at least very similar workouts so so this is what i do it's not about having formal tests let's say it's about uh having Workouts that simulate the race and prepare you for the race. So, for example, for a crit, your specific workouts would include repeated high intensity efforts, and you might uh, progress these by Uh, extending the duration of your sets where you have high intensity efforts and the recovery between high intensity efforts is still solid it might be tempo riding it might be you know 10 seconds of coasting and then riding at tempo or at least riding at yeah riding at tempo or so and then just repeating really high really high efforts and your progression might be to Decrease the recoveries between those high-intensity efforts, or it might be to extend the duration of the entire set, or maybe decrease the recoveries between sets. The, there are a number of things that you could go about this, but but that would be just roughly an outline for what the specific preparation workouts would look like for a flat road race with a sprint finish. Uh, I'd look to do a long solid ride. This would depend on the duration of the race, of course. Uh, so. so generally some kind of tempo but maybe you have some threshold intervals thrown in there even some uh, something above threshold Uh, so race basically race simulation efforts scattered in throughout the ride and uh, and then towards the end try to simulate the final few kilometers of the race Uh, so obviously you can't simulate the scrambling for position but try to simulate the intensity so how the power really goes as high as you can uh, essentially and uh, yeah trying to hold that really high power for a few minutes for those few kilometers where where it's really hard and then if depending on your role in the team of course you would also try to that would culminate in you simulating a lead out or the sprint itself the the final sprint for the line Uh, so so that would be the race specific uh, workout for for a road race with a sprint finish for a hilly road race you would do the long ride as above as above with race specific efforts and the duration again would kind of match the race you're doing or at least uh, approach it but then towards the end of the ride instead of those few kilometers, a couple of kilometers 3 kilometers of a few minutes essentially a really really hard effort you would finish with a longer hard effort the, and of course on a climb as long if you have climbs of that sort around you so it, it might not mean doing a one-hour climb if your race will finish in a one-hour climb but at least do a 30-minute a climb or a uh, or a 20-minute climb and maybe progress that from starting at 15 minutes and try to progress all the way to, uh, to uh, 30 to 40 minutes uh, as your final like really really hard peak workout so so that would be yeah a hilly or a road race with with a hilltop finish or a mountain finish and uh, of course some of you may ask if you should do dur- durability formal durability testing or fatigue resistance testing like doing a workout of 2000 kilojoules 3000 kilojoules and then doing 20 minutes all out or even doing something doing a 20 minute fresh test and then doing it again after 2000 kilojoules but uh, i don't do that uh, it's actually something we talked about recently with michele Zanini that uh, for testing let's say durability you'd want to make it very specific to the event that you're pre- preparing for and these workouts that i've given examples of at least these road race workouts would be perfect examples of they are essentially durability tests but they are specifically designed to that goal event so so yeah that's why i wouldn't do any more formal and let's say sterile and boring uh, durability testing but it would really be trading is testing in that sense so i hope that this helps i guess it's a matter of perspective really i might see this as training but you could see it as testing equally well um, because you will be or you would want to repeat the same workouts or at least very similar workouts when you do a similar build for a similar event uh, again uh, at a different time point so so in in a way it definitely is testing training is testing right, and the next question, I don't have the name of the person asking, sorry, but uh, the question is, can you recommend a self-test protocol based on heart rate for comparing running shoes? Uh, So yes, uh, that is actually a very good question and very relevant now that there are a lot of super shoes out there and a lot of people want to figure out what is the fastest shoe for me. We're getting more educated with realizing that there are differences between shoes, and they might not. What works best for one person might not work best for the other person. It's not. It's generally not the case that the the shoe that is the fastest for one person will be the slowest for another person there are definitely overlaps but the the shoe that is the first and the second fastest for one person might be the second and the f- and and the fastest for another person so so just to give you an idea it's not uh yeah it, it, you don't have to turn everything on its head and think that well just because everybody else is using these shoes uh, they could uh, equally be worthless for me. That's probably not the case, but they might not be the absolute fastest shoe. Anyway, so the testing protocol, uh, you would, of course, bring all of your shoes that you want to test Uh, to the test and I really really recommend doing this test on a treadmill just because that gives you the best control uh, not only with speed but also with conditions because you could do it in in an air conditioned gym uh, or at home if you have a treadmill but you could control for environmental conditions and of course speed takes care of itself because you just set that on treadmill obviously you would then want to do it if you repeat tests later on uh, and you want to compare between tests then you would need to do it on the same treadmill ideally but but generally that is not necessarily the most important thing because anytime you're testing shoes you would want to know okay of these two pairs of shoes that i have which ones should i use in my next race or my next couple of races so so let's say for for this example that we have we have two pairs of shoes that we want to compare i'm just going to uh, use in this example we're comparing a Nike's and Asics shoes just for for an example the first thing you would want to do and you can use another pair of shoes or one of the pairs that you're going to test it doesn't matter for a good warm-up and that warm-up is supposed to at the end raise your heart rate quite significantly so you want basically the test speed will be around your marathon pace for faster runners half marathon pace for slower runners what is faster what is slower let's say if you're a three-hour marathoner or close to three-hour marathoner 310 something like that then then you can use a marathon pace if if you're slower than that for the marathon then i mean you're still fast don't get me wrong but this is just to give a an indication then you can use half marathon pace maybe if you're More closer to 330 than 315, at least let's say. Then, then I would say suggest half marathon pace for a testing pace. Let's say we're a three-hour marathoner exactly. That means that we're running at 14 kilometers an hour, or four minutes 15 per kilometer, or uh, it means 8.7 ish, as I, I believe miles per hour, or. Seven something seven, seven, fifteen, seven twenty uh, minutes per mile, minutes and seconds per mile, Something in that range, you can do the conversion. It doesn't matter. I'm going to use fourteen kilometers an hour, obviously when you're on the treadmill. Uh, most of them show pace, but they also show kilometers an hour or miles per hour. so just let's keep it at fourteen kilometers an hour. That's our testing pace. We're going to do a good warm up, let's say twenty minutes, and the final six minutes, five, six minutes uh, we would go do at that testing. Uh, testing pace, so 14 kilometers an hour, three-hour marathon pace, just to make sure that we do a, sig- a significant duration of work at our testing pace to already start to get our heart rate to respond as if we were doing the test, so that the first test is not significantly different from the second, third, and fourth, and so on, because that would be, yeah, that that is what it's going to be if we just go from easy running to to then doing testing at marathon pace so so as part of the warm-up you need to finish with with doing doing uh, doing a significant amount of work at your testing speed then we're going to do two tests per pair of shoe again we're we're only only testing two pairs of shoes now so we're going to do four tests in total each test is five minutes and we're taking five minute recoveries between each test Uh, this gives us time to change shoes obviously but also to uh, fully let the heart rate recover and more it gives us more than uh, enough time to let the heart recover but it it just makes sure that we're starting from a blank slate not uh, each time i mean there will be maybe a little bit of fatigue accumulation but that's why we also test twice per shoe. So what we're going to do is we're going to test First, the Nikes, then we're testing the Asics, then we're testing the Asics again, and finally we're testing the Nikes again so that we don't have... If we only test once per shoe, then there is going to be a small impact of things like core temperature rising, maybe even uh, slight fatigue accumulation. It's not a fair test to, to set up a really fair test, and this is how it's done in research. We need to do what is called a counterbalanced test, so that is why we're testing testing these shoes twice per pair and doing that in the counterbalanced order. So five minutes at marathon pace or half marathon pace with each pair of shoe. We're making sure that we're collecting the data, we're, uh, we're recording our heart rate. And uh, of course, we know from the, we're taking note of the speed as well, uh, but the speed is going to be the same in each test and we make sure not to touch it. So we keep it at this 14 kilometers an hour, three hour marathon pace in, the, in this example uh right so so i'm going to do the test five minutes with the nikes then i step off the treadmill take five minutes recovery during which time i change to the asics shoes again run five minutes with the asics at the same speed uh keep the data running keep the data recording step off the treadmill for five minutes recovery and uh, keep the shoes on and do a second test with the asics so this is test number three but it is test number two with the asics shoes and again, five minutes off after that test and then finally changing to the Nike shoes again and we're doing the final five-minute test with the Nikes. So we had Nike, ASICS, ASICS, Nike. And then we go home and we upload the data and we look at the heart rate uh, for, uh, for each test. And I like to take the final two minutes of each five-minute test. This is the data I use because sometimes heart rate can just take quite a while to respond and stabilize the last three minutes would also be okay generally because two minutes should be enough for marathon pace or half marathon pace but i would rather be safe than sorry so i take the last two minutes and skip the first three minutes so i'm just going to use example numbers here let's say the first test with the nike we averaged 141 beats per minute for the last two minutes we note that down then the last two minutes with the Asics test one was 143 test two was 144 And then the the final test with the Nikes, the average heart rate for the last two minutes was 142. Then we average these heart rate numbers for each shoe. So for the Nikes, we average 141 and 142. We get 141.5. And for the ASICs, we average 143 and 144. And we get 143.5. So we have a difference in two beats per minute. And from what I've seen, I've done this testing, and I've also compared this to actually testing in the lab with running economy measurements two beats per minute is significant this is where you can maybe it doesn't look like much but we're at least talking about a minute or a marathon we might be talking two minutes two and a half minutes Uh, it's nothing to be snuffed at really It, it so yeah even even if you see a one beat per minute difference then at that case in that situation you might think that okay yeah this is really small so maybe i don't I'm not too certain about my results, but when you see two bits per minute, then that's that's already, a, in me, in my opinion, a, a pretty good indication of which one, which shoe is the best for you. So so yeah, you take the shoe that gives you the, the lowest heart rate for that identical speed that you test at, and this is it. This is how you would do a self-test protocol based on heart rate for comparing running shoes. The gold standard would still be to go into a lab and obviously do it with running economy testing, but uh, I think that this is a good test and for most people not all it will be sufficient to find which is the best shoe for you especially if you're only comparing two pairs of shoes but you need to do it really properly uh, the way that i described there are lots of mistakes that could be made when testing shoes and you could get false results basically if you don't set up the test well so that is important okay so the next question is from Vesa, who asks, how do I know my fat max watts and how to train in the best way in that zone? So I'm really not aware of any evidence uh, that says that there's anything special about training at fat max or in the fat max zone in fact there's one study I'll link to it it's called limited benefits of fat max test to derive training prescriptions by swindling in 2013 Uh, they took 16 trained to well trained cyclists determined their fat max and then had them cycle for one hour at fat max uh, and then one And in separate sessions, one hour at significantly below FATMAX and one hour at significantly above FATMAX. So those intensities in power were 210 watts for FATMAX and 173 watts for the step below and 248 watts for the step above and uh, fat oxidation was measured during each of those sessions and what they found was that fat oxidation was the same across all three sessions or there were no significant differences even though power and also heart rate and lactate levels were uh, very very different so fat max as we know it at least today is a very blunt instrument and not one that i would put a lot of stock in that's not to say that it's bad to train there i mean it is the top end of you or generally speaking you could describe it as the top end of your uh, zone two in a five zone system or if you if the top end of the moderate density domain in a in the moderate heavy and severe model so and and it's not I, I do prescribe training in in that area but it's more so to if we don't have a lot of really hard training to recover from then some of the endurance training can be done with a little bit of uh, a little bit of spice, so to say, and that's where, for me at least, in a coaching perspective, fat max training comes in. Even though I never would call it fat max training, I just call it something like endurance plus or something like that. Is is what I what I would tend to describe that as. um But yeah, it's it's not something that I would aim for to look specifically at fat max to to train there. Like if you if you have a rough idea of your uh, your your zones in a five zone system, then yeah, there is a there is a time and place to train in zone one and in zone two and at the high end of zone two. You just don't want to necessarily think that any one point is better than the other. It's the, the entirety of your program that is important, really, and that is what will, um, what will make you better. Um, but, yeah, to to go a little bit deeper, uh, I think that FatMax is a blunt instrument. I said that already, I think. But in, uh, in the study that I referenced before, FatMax was assessed with a step test so the step the steps were six minute long stages Um, but usually if you go to a lab and just ask for them to measure your fat max then they will do A ramp test with uh, an incremental test with significantly shorter uh, steps. Uh, Often they would be one minute steps uh, or 30 second steps or something like that Uh, but you would reach exhaustion pretty quickly, maybe after 10 10 minutes 12 minutes, something like that. And this is a great protocol for finding your VO2 max uh, but the labs will also use that test to to assess your ventilatory thresholds and even your fat max and your fat and carboxylation at different intensities. The problem with this is that there is never any time to find a steady state if you're using short uh, steps. So, so these uh, parameters that do require a steady state to be reliable, you should never get them from uh, from a, a testing protocol where the steps are shorter than I think three minutes would be the absolute shortest. So, this is something to be, um, you have to keep in mind that even if FASMAX was important, we would need to pay a lot of attention to how we measure it because the way the fat max that you might get uh, in a lab report based on a ramp test with let's say one minute steps that's probably not a super accurate fat max anyway Uh, so yeah to summarize i don't think there's any reason that you for you to need to know your fat max nor your maximum fat oxidation rate there's no evidence that i'm aware of that training in that zone is better than uh, training at any other intensity uh, I am pretty sure that if we did a study where we had two groups, and one of the groups, or we could have a crossover design, uh, and uh, and we had people do uh, three high intensity sessions per week for a few weeks or months, and uh, or if you use, most studies are weeks, so let's say weeks, and the other group trained at fat max for the equivalent amount of kilojoules, so we matched for for energy then the high-intensity group would improve their fat oxidation more than the fat max group would, simply because they would improve their VO2max more. Uh, does that mean that high-intensity training is the best way to improve fat oxidation? No, it doesn't. It's just a sign of the fact that a rising tide lifts all boats. So improving your endurance overall, uh, in this example through VO2max improvement, uh, that will also improve your fat oxidation. So yeah, I don't think there's not... a I don't think there's any convincing evidence uh, of there being shortcuts or gimmicks or secrets, um, uh, tips and tricks. Fatmax, max, I think, just rises with increased endurance, increased fitness. Train a lot, most of it pretty easy, some of it pretty hard. Recover well, and uh, and that's it. That's how you will maximize your your fat max so again I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't train there but you don't uh you, there's there's no zone that you need to avoid there, there's no gray zone but it's it's all about the overall structure of your program and you do not need to know your fat max So let's move on to the next question. And again, I've lost the name for who asks this test, but or who asks this question, sorry. But the question anyway is, I really struggle in tests that are not races. Uh, so for example, a local five kilometer run, should I therefore just race more? So yeah, this is a great question. I 100% understand the reluctance to do tests that are not races when it comes to running uh, specifically. Actually, you don't mention if this is only running or if you just uh, struggle in tests in general. But my experience uh, as a coach is that for a lot of people, running is much worse to do tests in a time trial tests in than cycling and swimming. Uh, so personally, I prescribe as little run testing as possible. And especially my advanced athletes would basically never do something like a, like a running time trial if they do testing on the run, it would be a lactate test if that's accessible. And otherwise, it would be a race, as you say, a 5K or a 10K race. But regarding whether you should uh, race more and in that way test more, I would say that it, it depends. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that, let me expand upon that. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have to race more. Uh, I do coach a couple of athletes, for example, that haven't done a running race nor any run testing in, in ages. Um, but similarly to the cycling test question that we had uh, before remember that workouts are also a sort of testing so if you can do the same workout but at an easier rpe that's a sign of progress and it can also be a signal to add a couple of reps to the workout or to do it a bit quicker next time depending on the nature of the workout so so you don't need to do a a one-off test necessarily to to get a specific idea of exactly where what paces you should be running at in training or whether your training is going well, your workouts will tell you. They will tell you if you're going better than you, than you went before. They will tell you if it is time to start to add a little bit more stimulus by adding more reps or even going a bit faster. So don't get me wrong. I do think that doing 5K and 10K races – is great Uh, it adds value so if you do like these races then I don't think there's much downside in in doing them and there is maybe some upside so so I would recommend doing them but I also wouldn't do them if you find that even though doing local races is a a bit of a struggle and it's basically emptying your mental tank a little bit and you want to keep that mental tank filled up for uh, the the triathlon races where you that you're really targeting so so I think it that that's what it comes down to really if you if you can easily do them without struggling mentally uh, or or if you would have to kind of force yourself to do to do these kinds of fi- local 5k and 10k 10k races but if if you can if it's not a problem for you and you like it then yeah I think it's great and especially during the winter I would recommend doing some 5k and 10k races. I would say that for a more beginner athlete or, or somebody that, not necessarily even beginner, but somebody who hasn't yet developed a, a really good sense of pacing, uh, then I would be more inclined to recommend, strongly recommend or more strongly recommend doing some races uh, if they, unless they're doing testing. Uh, so, so then it would be a bit more, yeah, then I would be a bit more prone to recommend it, I would say, to to also be able to in addition to let's say telling them that okay this workout should be done at 10k effort but i would also give a pace range if it's somebody did that i know isn't quite as in tune with their pacing as uh, as they as they will be later on in their career uh, so so that's something to keep in mind that depending on your sense of pacing and how how in tune you are with your running ability that will that will influence basically how important it would be to do A test or a race which would act as a test Um, i should also say that when we talk about doing more races as testing for 5k and 10k racing races i think that that's brilliant they because they also they are good as tests they are good as training stimulus because you couldn't push yourself that hard in a workout but you can also recover from these efforts quickly so so there are a lot of upsides to doing them but that's not so much the case when we go to races like a half marathon or especially a full marathon obviously then the downsides become quite a lot more significant so that's something you have to really keep in mind that when we're talking about running races here i'm generally talking about 5k and 10k races to to use as as tests and and not nothing longer than that or maybe we could stretch it to ten miles, but but that would be it and that would also depend on how how fast you are. But yeah, in summary to wrap up, if you are an experienced athlete with a good sense of pacing and effort and you or your Coach design your training so that it, that it in itself provides a measure of progress monitoring, then you don't have to race more uh, to use these races as test data. That being said, there aren't many downsides of doing it if the tests are not too long or the races are not too long, I should say So provided you enjoy racing it, then it wouldn't be a bad thing to incorporate them in your uh, training. If you're still working on your sense of pace and effort, then racing is a huge part of that learning curve and uh, and then I would really strongly recommend doing more races. Uh, as part of that learning curve and and also to get that additional data point to i guess be to that that will help you execute your training better uh, as well so yeah that's in summary i hope that that helps the next question is from sam who's asking for the best swim test for a 713 slash ironman athlete to assist with programming intensities so I talked about this in quite some detail in the swim training q and I will try to remember to link to it in the show notes. Uh, and uh, the testing that I use for swimming is a critical speed test that consists of a 100, a 400 and a 1900 meter time trial. The 1900 would be on a separate day, the 100 and 400 on the same day. This is with the assumption that your 1,900 meter time is not much slower than around 30 minutes. If you're closer to 40 minutes, then I probably wouldn't use a long test like that. Uh, Then I would shorten it significantly, maybe to at most 1,500 meters or something, but I recommend listening to that swim training Q&A for a detailed breakdown of why I like this test, but as a brief summary, it gives you a more realistic reflection of what your sustainable intensity or your quote-unquote threshold is versus a test with only short time trials like the very popular 400 plus 200 test. I do think that that tends to overestimate uh, the paces in a lot of athletes um so yeah in addition to that in addition to getting a more accurate of threshold the 100 meter is a shorter test so it allows you to better assess your top end speed uh you might even use a 50 uh if you want to uh and but the 400 also gives you a good target pace for when you're doing really fast VO2 max type swim workouts so so yeah there's a lot of advantages to, do, to using this combination the 100 400 1900 i've kind of come to this after experimenting with a lot of different setups and i'm sure that at some point in the future i will change again nothing is forever right but for now i'm really happy with with this uh, compared to anything that i tested before at least and um, one other note on the critical speed test is that Calculating critical speed from three, uh, from three different time trials is simple, but you generally won't find any calculators online for it. So, so you have to do it yourself uh, in Excel or Google Sheets. Basically, you would convert your pace for each time trial to your speed in meters per second. And then you would plot that speed against the inverse of time. So uh, so you would be plotting meters per second against one per second meters per second on the y-axis one per second on the x-axis so let's say for argument's sake that you swim your 100 meter in 60 seconds to make the math easy then uh, on the x-axis you would not put 60 seconds but you would put one divided by 60 whatever that is zero point something something Uh, so In Excel or Google Sheet, you would make a regression line with the three data points and the intercept of that regression line is your CS, so where it intercepts the y-axis. And This will be in meters per second, so you need to convert it back to pace again. And um, yeah, it sounds complicated, but it really is very simple if you have a little bit of Excel experience. But in addition to Uh, this as a test make sure that you have a proper race specific workout progression planned uh, for whether it's a 713 or an ironman build that you're doing Uh, the nice thing about the swim for age troopers in particular in 713 and ironman is that there it's short enough uh, and it's not super intense because you still have to bike and run for a long time so it's very feasible and advisable uh, even to simulate the entire swim in, tra- in training so for example for a 703 you could start your progression of workouts by doing five by 400 at 703 effort with one minute recovery and you should be able to pace all the 400s evenly or even with a negative split so the final so, by that I mean the final 400 should be as fast as the first one, uh, and, and then still finish feeling that you're fresh enough to jump onto the bike right away. So, so it's not a best effort workout, uh, uh far from it, in fact. And you can build to doing a, a 1900 meter continuous, uh, race pace effort. And, uh, that is something that I think there's a lot of value to doing, even though, uh, a lot of people, uh, we don't normally do it, but, uh, yeah, I'm more and more, uh, Coming to that conclusion that that's something that, that that yeah we benefit from implementing those sorts of workouts uh, for swimming uh, in uh, specifically, and for the full Ironman you could start with your progression with something like five by eight hundred or four by one thousand, and build to the full three thousand eight hundred meter continuous. The same thing apply, applies here with pacing and effort. You should feel that you have even more left in the tank compared to seven on three. Workout as obviously you have twice the distance of biking and running still to do so you have to hold back even more um, so even if you decide that oh i'm not going to bother with doing that critical speed test that michael recommends you can you can still use specific workout progressions like these and they will help you dial in your effort level and prepare you physically and mentally for executing the your swim on race day what what these Progressions won't tell you, nor any test, no test will tell you what will your race time be. The best thing that you can do for that would be to do an open water race or the same distance. Uh, but then still, it's it's all conditional upon race conditions, so currents, waves, uh, salt water versus fresh water and so on. Uh, but uh, training in the pool is very different than swimming in the open water in terms of the. Uh, the speeds that you will hold Uh, so you can't predict your race time necessarily from these from these progressions but what you can do is that you can compare your the splits that you did prior to one race with now that you're in in a in your next race build you can compare what you did in your prior race build and if you see that okay my times now in these same workouts are better uh, then that's a sign that yeah I have improved. And no matter how fast you swim on race day, because that might not be faster because of conditions simply, you are very likely if you have improved your fitness to at least place higher in your age group in the swim. So yeah, that this is this gives you the tools to see am I likely to move up the pack in the swim or 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 not compared to what I have in the past, even though you can't uh predict your, your swim time in the race from that. Uh, so so yeah that's uh that's in summary what I would say for swim tests and swim workout progressions for 73 slash ironman athletes uh by the way one one thing i want to point out a general point because in several of these questions the swim one and bike question as well earlier i talked about these specific uh race specific workouts obviously when you're training you're not only doing race specific workouts nor are you only doing race specific workouts and the rest of the workouts are endurance or easy workouts uh there's definitely other intensities that you that you might implement and this would depend on a lot of factors but you might do higher intensities or you might do uh lower intensities and uh yeah mix of all sorts of things really but but in those final weeks uh month for a couple of months before a race you will do a fair amount the emphasis will be more more on the race specific workouts and then there might still be some other ones but the the highest priority goes to the race specific workouts and so so when i'm talking about these uh, do not misunderstand me to say that these are the only key workouts that you're doing or the only hard workouts that you're doing but they are among the most important ones so so that's yeah something that i just wanted to make clear all right so let's take the final question for today and this is a long one uh this one is from adam who asks i just re-listened to your podcast episodes with michael rosenblatt uh, number episode number 244 and i wanted to ask about maximum aerobic power and how i could test this at home on the bike trainer what would your advice be on designing a workout utilizing the bike trainer to test my map my max aerobic power my plan was to do a ramp that progresses by 10 to 15 watts every two minutes. Firstly, what is your uh, opinion on this protocol and would you change it? Secondly, what would be your exit criteria for the test? Would it be a drop in set cadence, or heart rate reading, uh, exertion, or unable to complete the entire two minutes? All right, thanks Adam for the question. So let's first do a quick summary so that everybody's on the same page. Uh, maximum aerobic power map basically here means the maximum power that you sustain in a graded exercise test slash incremental test slash ramp test there are many terms used for this one thing and uh, this could be defined as the power of the final completed step in a ramp test or sometimes it could be you could apply a correction factor so that it accounts for a partially completed stage More colloquially, I would say, among athletes and coaches, MAP is often used as simply the peak one-minute power of a RAMP test. In the scientific literature i think there is a trend to move away from the term map and also similarly mav maximum aerobic velocity for running and to start to use the term w max which is the maximum work rate achieved in an incremental test because like many older terms that we use in exercise physiology maximum aerobic power is just very misleading it's not a great term uh WMAX maximum work rate makes a lot more sense because that is literally what it is in in that uh, testing protocol. But uh, let's see, I'll probably use WMAX and MAP interchangeably uh, con- continuing on because frankly, I am personally used to using the term MAP and it will probably take me some time to change. And uh, yeah, so you will probably hear MAP from me and what I mean with it is generally the highest one minute power that you achieve at the end of a ramp test. Uh, so, MAP or WMAX is very well correlated with VO2MAX, your maximum aerobic capacity. Uh, you've heard guests on this podcast, you've heard me previously in this episode recommend a five-minute test because an improvement in your performance in a five-minute test is likely to be the result of a change in VO2MAX. And uh, the same is true for your MAP or your WMAX a change in your WMAX is a good indicator of a change in VO2MAX so even if you don't know your VO2MAX because you're only testing at home on your trainer you can have a pretty good idea of if you have improved your VO2MAX or not and uh, I would say that MAP or WMAX is more interesting than VO2MAX actually because uh, MAP is determined by your VO2 max and by your gross efficiency. So in theory, you could have a great VO2 max, but a poor gross efficiency. And then despite your superior VO2 max, your power output might be the same uh, in a ramp test or in a race as somebody with a more modest VO2 max. So, Power is really the more relevant at the end of the day. Power is more related to speed than VO2 max, and speed is how you get from the start line to the finish line. Uh, so, so yeah, this is why MAP is just as good, if not a better performance indicator than uh, than VO2 max, at least in, in my opinion. And uh, MAP is always derived from some kind of ramp test, uh, incremental test, uh, graded exercise test. But What's really important to know is that what number you get out at the end of the test is very, very dependent on the design of that ramp and uh, specifically on the slope of the ramp. The slope basically means how many watts per second or watts per minute does the intensity increase by. So you could have, for example, one protocol where the power increases by 25 watts every minute and then another protocol where the power increases by 25 watts every three minutes. Let's say that your threshold is at 300 watts. This means that when by the time you get to the 350-watt stage, in protocol one, you have just spent the two prior minutes at 325 watts and 300 watts respectively, so at and above threshold. But in the second protocol with the three-minute stages, you have spent the six prior minutes, at three of them at 325 watts, three of them at 300 watts obviously by the time you get to the 350 watt stage you are already a lot more fatigued in protocol two than in protocol one and uh, at some you will fatigue more quickly basically and reach a lower peak power you will reach a lower uh, stage of the protocol when the slope of the ramp is lower for this reason you get you accumulate more fatigue because each you spend more time at each power to give you a very specific example from research uh there there has been there have been many studies, but one that, that I found was that that looked at different protocols and uh, MAP that was achieved or the Wmax that was achieved when the protocol the graded exercise protocol or the test protocol went from a a really steep slope of fifty watts per minute to a really shallow slope of eight watts per minute, the duration of the test increased on average from seven minutes to 30 minutes long so that's a massive increase in duration a four time a four times longer test and the uh, w max uh dropped by 108 watts so it was 108 watts lower with the shallower slope at a longer protocol than it was with uh, the steeper slope and the uh, the shorter protocol so this is a very very important point here never compare your MAP or your WMAX between different testing protocols especially if there is a difference in slope if the protocol is different but the slope is the same For example, if you compare protocol A, which is increasing power by 20 watts every minute, or protocol B, that is increasing power by 40 watts every two minutes, then these differences will probably be quite small, possibly statistically insignificant. But when there is a slope difference, you're really comparing apples to oranges, and therefore, no matter what protocol you use, make sure that you choose one protocol and stick to it so you're making valid comparisons. Because the actual number is completely dependent on the protocol. So the number itself doesn't matter so much it's the changes in the number that are interesting when you're doing this test these tests for yourself all right so i hope that that is clear but let's then look at how at how it matters how the design of the protocol matters how you should design your protocol and the considerations that exist so consideration one i think is that when you do testing in a lab where you're also measuring vo2 in, in this scenario, usually you want a shorter protocol, at least if you're also testing recreational athletes or less fit athletes. Because in this population, the athlete might actually fatigue before they reach VO2 max if they do a longer protocol, so a shallower ramp or a lower ramp. Research has shown that generally well-trained athletes do reach VO2 max even with longer protocols. And of course, at home on your trainer, you're not measuring VO2 max anyway or VO2, so it doesn't matter at all. But if you're more of a beginner athlete and you ever go into a lab and they provide a test protocol that takes you 20 to 25 minutes to complete... That, in my opinion, is a sign that the lab technicians chose the wrong protocol uh, because, yeah, generally I, I would say that the protocol should take the athlete to exhaustion in not much more than 10 minutes for a beginner athlete to make sure that VO2 max was attained. Again, for well-trained athletes, uh, this is not much of a consideration um, uh, and it's not an, an important consideration at all if you're not measuring VO2 anyway, but um, but only measuring power in a, in a home-based test. Um, but one thing, since you referenced the episode with Michael Rosenblatt, uh, he was arguing for doing these sh- very shorter protocols, making sure that they finish, that you reach ex- exhaustion pretty quickly within 12 minutes, I think is what he uh, talks about. And But I think that a big part of his argument is uh, related to being able to compare a Wmax results across different studies. That is not your concern as an individual self-coached athlete. You don't need to concern yourself with that. So so I don't think that it's necessary to have that short protocol constraint on you for that particular reason. There is another reason that we will get to next, and this is that... One of the advantages of a shorter protocol, so a steeper slope, is that the test is quick and does not induce as much fatigue. You might even do a, a workout after the test and after recovering, some active recovery after the ramp, and then you can go into a, a workout, some tempo riding, for example, or even a bit of threshold work. So, so that is a big advantage of using a shorter protocol. If you're doing a ramp that takes you 25 minutes, then yeah, that might just be a bit too much to be able to do any... Any kind of workout after that. So, so you're, and it might even take you just take something out of you for the next day or at least uh, the next session on the same day. So, yeah, recovery is a concern there or something to consider at least. Uh, the third thing to consider is that if we are also uh, considering sub maximal parameters like taking lactate samples and uh, measuring ventilation. These variables will not reach a steady state if we're doing a ramp test with just one minute steps. So this is where something like three minute steps might be a good compromise where you can get to at least close to a steady state for these parameters. But you still have the slope of the ramp steep enough that you don't fatigue too soon just from the duration of the test. Uh, I did shorten your question a bit, by the way, but I know in the original question you said that you don't use lactate. So for you, obviously ventilation you don't use without the specialized equipment of a lab. So for you, the point of of the MAP test really is to assess whether your training resulted in change in VO2max. So you don't really need to think about these submaximal variables at all. So So yeah, you don't need to that there's that's not a reason to go for longer stages at all that you need to look at some maximal variables you don't so so that's not a consideration for you but for some other people in some situations it might be a consideration and the final consideration is that uh, which is quite an interesting one i have read some research indicating that a longer protocol is more sensitive to pick up smaller changes in fitness so in other words if you pick a high slope like 30 watts per minute you might not see any changes in your map if your true fitness improvements exist but they were small and subtle but if you but you might see those see changes in the MAP if you're using a lower slope shallower slope like 15 watts per minute i don't think there's a lot of research on this but at least one study exists that i've seen that that shows this so so it is an interesting consideration that yeah a slightly shallower slope there could be more sensitive to pick up small changes in fitness so as you can see, there is no one right answer for what the best protocol is. You're always making trade-offs when deciding on your protocol and you have to decide which factors are important to you and be aware of the trade-offs you are willing to make. But um yeah, one example that I'm sure a lot of people will wonder about is the Swift ramp test. The Swift ramp test has a slope of 20 watts per minute. So the step length is exactly one minute and and every minute they, the power increases by 20 watts. This, in my opinion, is a good protocol. Lots of labs and lots of research paper use this exact same slope or a slope that is very similar. My very subjective impression without any kind of systematic investigation is that in a lot of the scientific literature, slopes of 20 to 25 watts per minute are really common. So the Swift test uh, is a good test uh, for... Finding your MAP or your Wmax, it is terrible as a threshold test, but that is a very different story. So you can very safely use that to test your MAP. And yeah, uh, I would I would think that that's, that yeah that's a very good good one to use. Uh, your suggested protocol to give some feedback on that: increasing ten to fifteen watts every two minutes. Uh, that is a long test with a low slope uh, to my mind. That's five to seven and a half watts per minute, so might put you closer to 40, 45 minutes for the test duration. I would personally prefer something a lot shorter. When I prescribe ramp tests, I tend to do something very similar to Swift, but I tend to use actually 25 watts per minute increases instead of 20 watts per minute increases. Just to get the test over with quickly, uh, minimize the recovery time and how much it takes out of you. And and it works well even for beginner athletes because there is no fatigue from the duration. So I can always use the same test with all my athletes. I'm not using the MAP test anyway for sub-maximal markers that require a steady state. I'm not using it for lactate, ventilation, heart rate, Uh, so I don't care about that. That is why I use one-minute stages with 25 watts per minute increases. But what you choose comes down to what you want to get out of the test. I would suggest, though, that your suggested protocol has too shallow of a slope. There's no reason to have that shallow of a slope in my mind. And uh, finally as for the uh, exit criteria or stop criteria for the test uh, I would have very few of them I would basically just pedal as long as you possibly can the only thing that you might have in addition to just until your legs literally can't turn the pedal over anymore would be yeah when your cadence drops below let's say 60 or maybe even 70 depending on what your normal cadence is let's say your normal cadence is 90 then i would say maybe you can have 70 as your exit criteria but if your normal cadence is more in the 80 range then you could have 60 as an an exit criteria Uh, but yeah when when you're at that point of really just grinding at that point you can also consider it Uh, but but that will generally happen when you're too fatigued to continue anyway so i I just think that you you continue until you can't continue anymore that's uh, that's really as, as simple as it needs to be even though i know that in research studies and in labs and so on they they do have additional exit criteria i just don't think that that's needed you you just go on until you can't go on anymore would be would be the main one I hope that you enjoyed this Q and A. As always, you can find the show notes for the episode on scientifictriathlon.com, and I have quite a number of links, both some uh, related episodes that we mentioned, were interviews with other guests, also a handful of uh, studies that are related to some topics that we discussed. Uh, so, for example, on respiratory training, fat max testing, incremental exercise test design, and uh, yeah, that's uh, those were the main ones that I put in there. Maybe maybe some else that I will think about later on um, but yeah lots of links for those that want to dig deeper if you want to improve your triathlon performance and level up to achieve your next goal there's uh, probably no single better thing that you can do than get some expert help along the way and at scientific triathlon we provide coaching services that cater to every need from beginners to professionals where the athlete is in the center the coaching is grounded in communication and individualization and the coaches all have a wealth of experience knowledge and coaching skills if coaching is out of your budget or not for you we also have ready-made training plans for different athlete levels and goal events and hundreds if not thousands of athletes have already set big PBs and reach new performance levels with these plans. They also have exchange and or money back guarantees, so it's a risk-free investment. You can find out all about our coaching, training plans, customized training plans and consultation options on ScientificDraftlon.com. and to discuss your options you can email me on Michael at ScientificDraftlon.com. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke and heart rate and advanced post-swim analysis. Use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim Goggles. And thank you to Zen8. Use the Zen8 Swim training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Zen8 workout done at home that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Zen8 risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on zen8swimtrainer.com forward